Welcome to season two of Care Transitions Today. This is a healthcare podcast with a focus on case management and transitions of care. The podcast is presented by the American Case Management Association, and I am your host, Deb McElroy. As we begin, I'd like to first thank today's sponsors, uh, Paradigm and the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. For 30 years, Paradigm has been the industry leader in solving catastrophic and complex healthcare challenges and improving lives. With the most connected and experienced team in healthcare, Paradigm delivers outcomes that exceed clients' expectations while helping individuals recover and thrive. To learn more about Paradigm's outcome-focused approach, their award-winning COVID-19 solution, and career opportunities, visit www.paradigmcorp.com. That's www.paradigmcorp.com. Um, if you've joined us in the, for any of the episodes on season one, you'll know that we had a focus in season one on COVID. And in season two, we're going to be focusing on innovation. But uh, COVID-19 is, is with us. And so today we are going to dive into uh, a unique perspective on recovery and rehabilitation. And I'm delighted to welcome three special guests, um, Sheila Benyon, Dr. Leslie Rydberg, and Diane Rolls. I'm going to just briefly introduce them and then let them give you um, a little bit of background about themselves as we start into our conversation today. Um, Dr. Rydberg is an attending physician at Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, also the medical student education chair, the assistant residency program director, and an assistant professor at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. She's a board certified general physiatrist with a primary clinical interest in neuromuscular disorders and medically complex rehabilitation. So perfect for today's discussion. Diane Rolls is the director of inpatient access at Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. Um, also an assistant professor of physical medicine and rehab, again, at Northwestern U University School of Medicine. And finally, Sheila, uh, Sheila Benyon is the Director of Clinical Services Catastrophic Care Management for uh, Paradigm. And as Director of Clinical Services, she oversees the performance of the Paradigm Management contracts with a focus on using data analysis to develop case-specific management plans and ensure uh, successful clinical and financial outcomes. She has uh, deep experience in case management and diverse care settings as a nurse, uh, published on workman's comp and case management topics. Uh, I should have mentioned uh, Diane Rolls is actively involved in research with many publications and honors. Dr. Rydberg also um, has uh, a great depth of experience. And so um, I'm going to let her uh, give us uh, just a little bit of a um, to set the tone for today's discussion, a little bit of information about herself and uh, the initiatives that they have had uh, going in the last few months that we want to talk about today. So Dr. Rydberg. 
Thanks, Deb. Thanks for inviting me to join the talk today. I'm Dr. Leslie Rydberg, and uh, as you mentioned, I'm a general physiatrist, and I was one of the people who sat around in March of 2020 and listened to the news about COVID pneumonia and was shocked and scared and confused, just like everyone else. But I realized pretty quickly that with the severity of illness in COVID pneumonia, that the COVID survivors really were going to need rehabilitation services. And so very early on, I volunteered to be a part of the uh, team that was taking care of these patients in the rehabilitation setting. So our physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists, nurses, social workers, care management, hospital leadership all got together and we were ready to serve and ready to provide this need um, for our patients. So we've had a COVID rehabilitation unit running since April 14th of 2020. And we've really seen the severity of illness has really lent itself to being addressed from an inpatient rehabilitation setting. So I think this is a really important topic to think about, you know, what sorts of resources our patients need to thrive once they've survived this illness. That's great. Thank you for those comments, because I think that frames our discussion today and especially relevant for our uh, case management audience. So I'm going to uh, go to Diane uh, first and maybe then Sheila. When should you consider transitioning a patient to a facility with specialized COVID uh, rehab treatment? I. Um Again, thanks, Deb. The best time to participate in starting to transition a person to rehabilitation is actually very early on in their stay of COVID, um, particularly if they're having a severe uh, course, uh, because the rehabilitation team can watch the case, uh, follow the case along with the acute care team, and then help prepare the patient to be able to participate in rehabilitation by letting them know when, when the person is ready. Uh, many times the patient's gonna have a complicated treatment course on medications requiring oxygen, and that acute course would have to be completed to the point where they're starting to improve. They're not getting any longer medications such as remdesivir that require an acute inpatient stay in an acute care hospital but they probably still will need oxygen. They probably still will desaturate a little bit during therapy. They're gonna still be very fatigued. And so when the transition is, we're, we prepare for the transition all during their illness, but when they actually start turning the corner and start improving is when the transition to acute inpatient rehabilitation should be ready to go. So it should be planning up until then, and then the transition will be when they're actually showing improvement. Um, sometimes we think like maybe about day five after the ICU, um, and if they're asymptomatic, not in the ICU, we like to watch them for three to five days, and then um, that would be the key time. That's great. And I'm assuming you're director of inpatient access, so you're collaborating during the acute care stay. The communication starts, as you mentioned, early on. Right. So um, I am uh, helping coordinate the transition. 
And uh, we would like to have a referral very early on so that we can follow along with the case and prepare for a smooth transition. That's great, Diane, thank you. And um, Sheila, I'm gonna have you add to that. Maybe you can give just a little bit of uh, in additional information about your role and then um, uh, follow up on Diane's remarks about um, you know, when it's appropriate to have a patient come and transition to a rehab setting. Thank you, Deb. Um, as you've said, Sheila Benyon, I am a registered nurse. I'm a certified case manager and the director of clinical services. Um, Paradigm, where I work, has been a leader for over 30 years in solving catastrophic and complex healthcare challenges and improving the lives of injured workers and families. Um, as part of a team, and on each team I manage, I have a nurse, I have a physician, and for the COVID cases, I have a community support specialist who we'll talk about later when we talk about psychosocial pieces. And with each of those, we develop that uh, case-specific uh, management plans and oversee the performance of each of those to make sure we get the best outcomes for them. Um, with that, so if I add to what we do with when they're ready to go to rehab, some of these cases, as Diane noted, we may be looking at them from the acute hospital, but others are more severely with that COVID and they're still on a vent. So you can't, they're not able to go to an acute rehab at that point. So we may even send them to a long-term care, um, an LTAC. And while they're at the LTAC, we'll try to get them off the vent. And once they're off the vent, then we will strategize and try to get them into acute rehab. Um, and that we've had to do with a number of cases. We had an example where an elderly gentleman ended up at an LTAC. We weren't sure if he would come off the vent or not. He was able to. And then our nurse worked with the local acute rehab to transition him to acute rehab. The part with that is sometimes we think they can't go to acute rehab till they can do three hours of therapy. These patients who have COVID are severely deconditioned. They may have been on the vent a long time. So with that, we kind of wanna make sure that they can get to three hours. So sometimes it's working with acute rehab to say, okay, they can't do three hours now, but we want them to start and see them progress there. So I think we've had to be innovative in looking at how do we transition patients and we might do it a little sooner than we may have before. So I think with COVID, we've all had to think outside the box and how can we get them the care to get there. That's great, thank you, Sheila. And I'm, I'm gonna circle back to Diane because really you touched on, on some of the requirements. It looks a little different for this specific diagnosis. So Diane, I'm gonna go back to you because you gave you know some um, criteria and, and you know number of days post uh, post ICU stay. Um, anything else that you want to comment on um, from your perspective when you're looking at these requirements for who fits? And I guess I would think our audience would also be interested to know. I, uh, you know, what's your capacity? I, I mean, has capacity been an issue with the volume of patients that you've had? So um, we'll start with the capacity uh, question. And our COVID unit has started out, um, you know, nine, 10 beds, went up much larger than that. We compressed it down, we expanded again. Right now we've compressed it down again to nine, nine beds. And so we're adjusting as COVID-19 
affects us. Um, and so that allows us to be able to, to meet the needs. The other thing that's important to know is on our unit, we do have uh, at least for uh, one room that's negative pressure and other rooms that allow us to take patients who have open tracheostomies, uh, CPAP. Um, and the reason that that's important, you need the negative pressure is because anybody who has an open airway or is requiring a CPAP, we call that aerosolizing. So the droplets from their respiratory system can be going out into the room and it, it affects exactly how we need to isolate these patients. So we not only size appropriate our COVID unit, we also make sure that we have enough adequate room to take care of people um, no matter where they are in their recovery with tracheostomies, without tracheostomies. Um, yeah, another aerosolizing treatment is a nebulizing treatment. So anything that would allow the particles to go into the air and in order to keep the patient safe, the staff safe, it's important to be able to accommodate all of those, those conditions. Um, other, the, as far as the timing goes, it's just kind of through our experience uh, with Dr. Reidberg and with our teams that we put a five-day guideline, never a hard, fast rule, but it's a guideline out there for out of the ICU because so many times if a person had a very complicated course, they come out of the ICU, they're doing a little better, their oxygen needs are decreasing, their saturation is not, uh, is, is holding, but then they, they can fatigue, they can get, their condition can worsen, and some can end up back in the ICU. So you definitely wanna make sure that they're ready to move to another level of care because we're gonna talk about psychosocial things in the future, in further on in the, in the podcast, but we want these people to be able to succeed. And succeeding is setting them up so that when we're confident that you know, we can take them to the next level and we can and get them exercising and moving forward in their disease. Okay, that's great. And I, you know, I'm hearing from both uh, you, Diane, and Sheila, you know, a little bit of innovation required, a little bit of looking at things differently. So I'm going to go to Dr. Rydberg and, and just can you talk about the program itself? So, you know, we get the, the folks there. What are the components as you sat there last March in 2020? What does a, what is the good program look like? And I'm assuming you learned some lessons along the way. That's absolutely true. So in March, 2020, I really had no idea what we were gonna see or what we were gonna get ourselves into. But looking historically at our patients who have survived critical illness in the ICU from other diagnosis, we had a pretty good idea of, of what we might be in for. So really looking at the rehabilitation program, it first and foremost requires that strong interdisciplinary team. So this is overseen by a physiatrist. Uh, and as the director of the COVID unit, I've taken care of the vast majority of the COVID patients who have come through our hospital with support from other some of my partners. Um, but we've seen a lot of medical issues, um, blood clots, uh, dysphagia, 
pain management, um, neuromuscular weakness, such as uh, peripheral neuropathies or critical illness myopathy. We've seen a lot of wounds, obviously the respiratory needs with trachs, um, uh, things like that. But really this requires the whole team. You know, the physician is not nearly enough to, to manage this. So looking at the different members of the team, the nurses are probably the most important in that they're providing the hands-on day-to-day care, all of the education and support, titrating that oxygen, trying to get people off of oxygen, very vital role there for the nurses. Speech therapy has been surprisingly important too with these patients who've been in the ICU, intubated potentially multiple times, long times with ventilators. We're seeing very high incidence of swallowing problems, um, hypophonia or a hard time projecting their voice. And so we've had a lot of intensive speech therapy and and corollary to that, we've had our dietitians working on calorie needs. Many of our patients have lost 10 to 20% of their body weight. And so the calorie uh, and nutrition support becomes very important in this patient population. Physical therapy is really focusing on the weakness. They've got significant proximal weakness, the endurance, um, the um, mobility uh, becomes one of the biggest goals that many of our patients have. They come in and they want to walk. They want to get back to that normal function. So a lot of gait training, endurance training, and the physical therapists are really keeping an eye on how much we can work on aerobic exercise uh, without causing shortness of breath or, or worsening of symptoms. So very important uh, from the physical therapy standpoint. And then the occupational therapists are working on fine motor coordination. You know, what kinds of tools or equipment can they use to optimize function and self-care? Okay, we've also seen a lot of uh, upper extremity mononeuropathy. So with the prone positioning for patients on the ventilator for prolonged periods of time, we've seen um, some ulnar nerve injuries, radial nerve injuries, brachial plexus injuries, and that leads to really interesting patterns of weakness in the upper extremity. So the occupational therapists are vital at really working on that strength and function of the upper extremities. And then respiratory therapy, of course, is important with nebulizer treatments, oxygen treatment, um, trach management, uh, as uh, Diane mentioned earlier, and then the psych support. Every rehabilitation program really requires that um, support for the anxiety and the depression. And then with the COVID diagnoses, the isolation that our patients have seen has been really striking. Uh, they've been stuck in a hospital room. Almost no one's allowed in, including the, within the hospital staff. They're not allowed to have visitors. And so they not only have this life-threatening illness, but then they have this severe isolation from their family and friends, uh, and even humans, other humans. And so coming in to rehabilitation where we are trying to give them that psychological support, but also have so many staff members interacting with them uh, is really important to look at their, um, their mood um, and anxiety as well. Okay, so um, actually, I want to I want to ask you this, Dr. Rydberg, and then I want to circle back to something Sheila said. But so when you think about the patient that, um, if you're thinking about your success stories in these programs, are there characteristics that you thought, okay, this this patient, you know, um, this profile of patient is going to do well. Um, what are you looking for? I, I, I think Diane touched on it a little bit, but what are you looking for to bring somebody in that's going to really benefit? So many of our patients I would consider to be success stories. So even our patients who haven't had the most severe of a course, they come in and they do 10 to 14 days at inpatient rehab and they go home. I consider that a success. But for me, 
what is the most rewarding is our patients who have been the most sick, who have struggled the most, who come in with the highest deficits, who come in and are most ill. Um, for example, I had a patient who had been in the acute care hospital and then in the, the LTAC for, uh, for three and a half months before he came to us. And he was required total assistance for all mobility. He had significant weakness from critical illness. He had a tracheostomy tube, a feeding tube, a pressure ulcers, it was still on oxygen. And when he got to us, he really could do very little. You know, and so getting to work with him over the six weeks that he was in inpatient rehab, getting to see his progress, take out all his tubes and lines, get him off his oxygen, get him talking, getting him eating, getting him walking was just the most rewarding because we really, the entire team got to know him as a human being. We got to share his successes with him. And the day that we got to discharge him from the hospital, we we just while we're cheering a little bit inside and, and sad to see him go because you know he had become kind of a part of our team. Um, but I think that sometimes the most challenging patients can be the ones that are most rewarding. I love that answer. That is a, that is a win for everybody. Shirley Ryan Ability Lab has provided critical rehabilitation services for more than 200 COVID patients. Surviving the disease is the first step. Recovering cognitive deficits, endurance, and other functions requires intensive inpatient rehabilitation, and this organization is leading the cause. Ranked number one by U.S. News & World Report for 30 years, Shirley Ryan Ability Lab is the premier rehabilitation destination for adults and children with complex conditions such as stroke, brain and spinal cord injuries, amputation, and cancer-related impairments. Their state-of-the-art 262-bed facility is the first inpatient rehabilitation hospital to integrate research into the clinical setting. Doctors, nurses, therapists, and scientists work side-by-side -side surrounding the patient, collaborating on new therapy and technology to deliver the best patient outcomes. To learn more, visit sralab.org ACMA. Again, that's sralab.org slash ACMA. Sheila, you had talked about somebody just like what Dr. Reiberg is, is describing, where they're not going to go right to rehab, but maybe take a stint in the long-term um, setting. So uh, just in general, and I should point out Paradigm Partners with uh, Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. So just overall, what are you seeing as um, characteristics of patients that are really benefiting from uh, rehab? I think it's those patients who, I think Dr. Reiberg has well described those patients that we see. And I think um, what I was thinking as well as Dr. Ryberg was talking about was that these patients don't make the gains maybe as quickly as some of our orthopedic injuries that go to acute rehab. We are looking for smaller incremental increases for them to rehab. And I think those, you know, the gentleman I can think of that went to the LTAC, when he was in the LTAC, he, his wife was um, on FaceTime with him 16 hours a day because she couldn't see him, right? So with that, but to keep him motivated and get moving, I think it's those patients 
they have all those needs that Dr. Ryberg was talking about, you know, speech therapy. I think people think of having COVID, it's a lung disease. It's going to be that you're on the ventilator. And I don't, not everyone understands the true impact of we do as we see in these cases um, and probably have the highest respect for COVID-19 because we know all of those impacts. You know, they the speech therapy, I think that use, as Dr. Ryberg was noting, they really need a lot more of that. Um, I ha have had a nurse who will never go back to work. She has cognitive deficits that she will not regain. So I think in that, what we see as rewarding and getting them home, these people have long-term effects from COVID and if we can get them rehabilitated to the best of our ability, the best we can give them. Um, but they may have long-term effects from having COVID. So it's it's all of those, using all of those resources. So the best we can do is get them to acute rehab and, and do that. And our length of stay may be a little bit longer. It may We need to really be innovative as to why do we have them there. I'm fortunate I work in workers' compensation, so we have a little different. It's not like group health that may only give you so many days to be there. Um, we can kind of, we can say they're making advances, they're improving, we want them to stay longer and our incremental increases. So I, I think that's a great segue to what I was thinking about next. Um, and I'd love a comment from Dr. Ryberg. So you have a, uh, patient similar to the one you were describing before, and it's time to go home. And success is defined maybe differently than you might for other patient populations. So what kinds of issues um, are you thinking about when they transition to home? When we're thinking about transition to home, the first thing we have to think about is what is the isolation status? Many of our patients are concerned about going home and spreading the infection to their loved ones, to their family members, and whether or not they've been cleared from isolation. So many of our patients have been cleared, are not on isolation units, and they still have the fear of the virus to contend with. So we have to have long talks and a lot of educational sessions with our patients about you know, what they can and can't do, how to continue to keep themselves and, and their loved ones safe, depending on whether they've been cleared from isolation. But it's such a anxiety-provoking thing to go back into the community while we're still in the COVID era. So that's one of the big unique considerations that we're really looking at in, in this patient population. And then thinking about you know, what comes next. So family support, you know, who's able to provide some assistance at home, doing some family training before they go, what kind of medical services they need at follow-up. We routinely set our patients up with their primary care doctors and then, you know, whatever specialists they may need. But one unique thing that we're thinking about is, is the pulmonary follow-up. Many of our patients are going home with oxygen. Who's going to wean that? Who's going to manage that? Um, many of our patients still have ongoing endurance and shortness of breath issues. And so we're starting to see pulmonary fibrosis in this patient population. So we have started referring our patients uh, to pulmonary follow-up to make sure that this is um, an ongoing uh, treatment that they receive. Many of the other home considerations are similar to our general patient population. You know, what kind of uh, home environment do they have? What kind of therapies they're going to go? What additional supports do they need? Okay, thanks. And Sheila, just along those same lines, thinking about issues for tra transitioning home, but also long-term rehab, uh, you know, as you said, your lens might be a, a slightly different, but... Um, 
anything else you would add to that as you're thinking about long-term rehab needs or support services? So I think one of the things that we've been innovative and I think a lot of facilities have have assisted in is sometimes getting them home, their fear of getting COVID again or isolating is what resources are available to continue their acute their rehab. So sometimes we've been using a lot of telemedicine. So starting them at home doing OT, PT, speech therapy, psychology, continuing that while they're at home. So what services are available in their area? That's really important to understand. Um, that follow-up is key. What ox- Are they going home on oxygen? Do they have a pulse ox so they can check their oxygen levels? Um, that's an important piece for them because that's how the pulmonologist sometimes is able to assist in can they decrease their oxygen use at home. Um, Durable medical equipment, they may still need to go home with the wheelchair that they need when they go long distances, they may have that endurance issue. You know, walkers, what bathroom needs do they need? Dr. Ryberg was talking about what's their home setting. You know, where's the bathroom? Where's the bedroom? How many stairs to get in? How many stairs to get, you know, out of the house? What is it that that's going to help? And are we going to do personal care attendance? Maybe they don't have someone at home. And how long is that going to be needed? because a lot of them will need that assistance. And for family, that's that burden that can be, they're taking care of them, but we may have families that also have COVID. So if you're sending them home for an environment, you need to think about what the other family members and if they have that. And then that medical follow-up, they have long-term medical follow-up. And I think a lot of innovative programs have been developed for patients with COVID. Thinking back to the first case I managed in April of last year till now, we've come a long way. Everybody has become a lot more innovative. I think um, Shirley Ryan and Paradigm really were on the forefront of like getting ready and doing that. But all both of us have, you know, make modifications as we've learned more and, and learned what worked and what didn't work, you know, and as things were changing in the environment, but they have long-term needs. So it's that physician follow-up is important. For us, we have a case manager. So a nurse who's um, on every case, we have the community support specialist. So they give them psychosocial support. And then we have a physician who can have physician to physician discussion. And for us, that's good. That keeps them moving in their recovery. So I want to pick up on something that you're talking about, which is the psychosocial challenges. So we just talked about, you know, issues where it's specifically COVID related issues, but then woven throughout all of this, what I heard Sheila talking about were things you think about when I would think um, any patient is discharged from a rehab facility. I mean, there's some things that are just part of, of what you do. So I, in a unique way, I think the psychosocial challenges have presented themselves. So I, I'm going to go back to Dr. Rydberg just for your perspective. And then Sheila and Diane, when you're thinking about not just the patient, but the families as well, um, can you talk about those challenges that you've encountered? In the inpatient rehabilitation setting, we've had very anxious family members. And a lot of that is due to the fact that they haven't been able to see their family members with the isolation. So I've actually had family members who drove to the hospital to watch their loved one be loaded into the ambulance to be taken to rehabilitation, just so they could have that one moment of seeing each other before they went back 
into isolation at the next level of care. So it, it's it's huge. The the isolation, the fear of infection, um, has been such a trying process for our patients and their families. And then many of our patients who have been um, in the ICU on uh, on ventilators have had significant delirium. And so they're waxing and waning. They're not sure who they are, where they are. And these people are coming into their rooms with these masks and respirators and gowns. And so in their confused state, they're not even sure if these are, are, are people, you know, what's, what's going on. So we're getting patients coming to us who still have that delirium in some cases um, or have significant effects beyond that. So it's the anxiety and kind of the post-traumatic stress sort of symptoms. So we're dealing with that a lot in the acute care setting and our patients do really well getting into much more normal routines and getting to start interacting with family members more. But transitioning to the outpatient setting, that discharge process um, is also really challenging because their recovery is not done when they leave inpatient rehabilitation. And so there's still that fear of, can I get back to work? Can I get back to independent? You know, why do I still have all these residual effects months later? And the cognitive piece can be huge. I have patients who, you know, still aren't back to work six months, nine months after a COVID infection, that fear of, am I ever gonna feel like myself? Am I ever gonna be able to support my family? Puts an additional layer of stress and anxiety on all of this. Um, so there's multiple facets of the psychosocial needs that go forward here. Great, thanks for those comments. Sheila, how about any? I think another piece of that, that psychosocial, it's so hard for the family is they might now be together 24 seven and they weren't before. Um, the gentleman I was mentioning earlier, he and his wife both worked. They're now home. They are with each other 24 seven and that's wearing on them as well, as well as they're not recovering to the same level the, the spouse may be noticing like, wow, they've made a lot of gains, but the person who had COVID is like, I'm not back where I was before. Um, but I think that fear, they're not able to, when they're in the acute hospital, they're not able to access information. You know, the facilities are so busy, they can't even get someone to give them information. They have questions, they need those questions answered. So sometimes it's the case manager who's able to, you know, set up a certain time, get those questions from that significant other and bring that to the facility and ask them and return with that information for them. I think it's being innovative. How can you help them? Because like Dr. Ryberg said, once they go home, it's not the end of it. There's a lot of unique symptoms or issues that sometimes come up that weren't identified when they were in it acute hospital or acute rehab. So it, it's ongoing. And I think for families, that's quite stressful. And if they have a pre-morbid or pre-COVID you know, um, medical issues, psychological, if they were um, they drank or used drugs or any of those items, depression, anxiety, the anxiety and depression can be heightened by having COVID and the families are having to deal with that as well. Um, and not being able to see them. And it can be on either side. The, it's, you know, the families are very upset. They couldn't be there with their injured workers. So they have a lot of guilt and anxiety, not that they could do it. As Dr. Ryberg was noting, you know, they go and see them get in the ambulance to go to acute rehab because that's the first time they may have seen them in weeks. And I think that's the piece. The woman who was on the 
the FaceTime, you know, 16 hours a day with her husband, you know, so that she could speak to the providers when they came in to talk to him. And that's the only way she get get information and giving her the permission that we can help you and you don't have to do that. I think that's where we all can come in and really make a difference in their lives. Yeah, so that's interesting. Diane, I'm going to ask you as well, because I'm thinking that in your collaboration with the acute care side, as you're preparing to um, accept these patients into Shirley Ryan, you're seeing some of the psychosocial anxiety and isolation, all of the things that Dr. Rydberg and um, Sheila talked about. Any comments? So most of... um... I'm going to be honest in the role that I'm in right now um, as a nurse practitioner in an administrative role. Um, I spend a lot of time with the families and um, the, they're, they're asking a lot of questions of, and much of it is what, what has already been discussed, um, asking about isolation, asking about when they'll get to see their loved one and what they're going to see. Um, and obviously, depending on where the person is in their course of isolation or being cleared of isolation, those answers can be very different. And in all acute inpatient rehabilitation uh, patients, outcomes are are different. They're very unique to the to the person and to the condition. So um, it is a wonderful opportunity for me to get to spend time with the family, try to understand what their, what it was, what was it, what was normal for them prior to the COVID-19 and then talk with them about what's been normal or what, what are their challenges? What are they feeling? What are they sensing since their loved one's been in the hospital? And then also what they can expect when they come into acute care rehabilitation, acute rehabilitation and after discharge. So it's more from the chair that I'm sitting in, it's a lot more of the family and just trying to help them find their path as to what they can expect so that their expectations um, can be put in, in, in a perspective for them because they have no idea what to anticipate. I mean, it was one day their loved one was home with them, the next day they weren't. Um, so it is very, very challenging. Um, and they have no idea of what it's going to look like when they come home with them again. And so even though you may not have specifics, you can paint a, a general picture for what they're going to, uh, both what their loved one and what they're about to embark upon with acute rehabilitation and the advantages to coming to acute rehabilitation. Yeah, certainly highlights the complexity for uh, the patient, the family from the beginning of diagnosis through, you know, an undetermined endpoint. Um, I want to uh, think about Sheila and, and have you talk about something that you mentioned or, or touched on, which is how do you manage cases where access to information? I mean, you talked about that isolation, it's pieces, somebody's on the for 16 hours on um, FaceTime, um, 
So how do you manage cases when there is that limited access to information or limited access to the patient? Uh, you know, Diane's talking about working with the families. Obviously, you need to do that. Any Anything else that you can share with our case managers? Yeah, I think the most challenging, I think as a case manager, we're excited once they get to acute rehab because that's when we do have more access. But especially when they're in the acute hospital, it's really difficult. Um, so sometimes if the injured worker is able to, we may FaceTime with them so that we can actually have a face-to-face because -face they're on isolation. We can't go into the hospital, but maybe you can do a short call with them. For us, we need to get in many states, we have to get a release of information so that we can have our doctors talk to the other physicians. So in that way, what we've been able to do is send the release, case managers or someone in the hospital can print out the form, bring it into them, they can sign it. We would normally want the paper version, but what we've done is if they can take a picture of their signature, because nothing can leave their room at that point if they're on isolation. So if they can take a picture of that, we can use that picture as yes, we have permission for release of information for us to be able to work with them. And then once they can come out of isolation, we can get a signature paper copy, but we have that. So that's kind of like we've had to think about. A lot of it may be we have to communicate with the family. So we may not be able to get to that injured worker. They're on a vent, they're prone, they're in isolation. No one is able to see them. So maybe our main focus is on that family, supporting the family, getting the family through this. What information do they have? What do they need? Finding a contact at that facility is more and more important. And I think it's going back to those relationships we developed pre-COVID. So if I if I knew you, Deborah, and you worked at, at a facility and I'm like, oh, I know Deb, I can call her, she can be my contact. I build, I take that relationship that I've already developed and I go, I use that. And I might set up to a particular time. I might say to that facility, I'll call at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. And that's when I'll you set up those times and try to be that you can get the information that way. And then also a critical piece is our physicians. We'll have physician to physician discussion. And I think we learn a lot of information that way. And we can make sure that the treatment plan is maximized. So we have had injured workers who have moved to a different facility in the acute hospital because they needed a treatment that wasn't available in maybe a local hospital, a smaller hospital. So it's making sure what's treatments there to make sure. And then we can also bring that back to the family. We also had a family member who could use a patient portal. And by having the patient portal, they were able to get access to information about the injured worker every day. And they were able to give that to the, to the nurse um, case manager who was working on it. So it's a unique, we've had to think of what are new ways to get information that you may not have had before. I, I see that all, all around. Um, Dr. Uh, Reidberg, I, I'd like to go back. So we've, Diane and Sheila, I think are, are just touching on um, some of the things that are, are the challenges for the staff, are the challenges, you know, for just navigating from a family perspective, patient perspective, staff perspective, how difficult this was. And you kicked off our conversation today by talking about sitting in that room in March of 2020. So here you are uh, almost a year later, just would be interested in your reflection on um, the journey and where you're at today. 
There's been so many times along the way when we've changed things, we've modified things, we have learned so much as we've gone along. And I think what what it really shows is that as a rehabilitation professional and institution, we really need to think about what our patients and families need and what they want and how to deliver that in as safe and as an environment as possible. And we have to continue to adapt. And this patient population really, really needs the services that we're providing. So it's been great to be along for the ride in terms of, you know, working with these patients, working with the team. I remember the fear that we had as staff members, as team members in April when we first opened the unit and the comfort that so many of us have now with this patient population and this diagnosis. You know, we've had, we've published research papers, we've, you know, spoken at conferences, we are, you know, working through the entire continuum of care from acute care hospital, acute rehab, you know, outpatient day rehab. We're collaborating with other uh, specialties um, around, uh, around um, the Chicagoland area. And it's been really rewarding to take this major challenge and really work to be such an important part of the care process for COVID pneumonia. Well, I just, from my perspective, applaud each one of you for, for your role. It, it is been a time that we know none of us anticipated and really called for. Uh, we talked about innovation at the beginning, but innovation and courage and uh, dedication. So thanks to each of you. Um, we're getting to the end of our time, but Sheila, Diane, uh, last comments. Sheila, first I'll go to. You change your focus as you go along. You learn a lot as you're managing. I have myself kind of tried to figure out for each injured injured worker I see, what is unique? Is there something? Is there a pattern? What, you know, that drives this? Why did this person get the worst case versus others? Um, it has been a very rewarding piece for this. And seeing how care in the acute care hospital has changed so much from last April to where we are now. You know, how soon they were putting them on the ventilator, now they're holding back, what medicines they're using. I think for each of us, it's seeing that and learning it. Um, being in the front seat, I was hearing things before it ever was on the news. So then I'd watch the news and go, I knew that a week ago, or, you know, because our physicians who are involved in this are working in ICUs, we have one um, physician who works down in Florida and his ICU on a daily basis was overflowing with and closed because they had no more beds, ICU beds for COVID cases. So um, it's been a very rewarding experience and to see how everybody has changed how we do um, manage. A lot of acute rehab facilities are now offering um, the ability to do telemedicine. I think a lot of them would have said a year ago, we'll never do telemedicine, but everyone has has had to be more innovative. It's, you know, you're hearing from Shirley Ryan and Paradigm how we've done this. I think every one of us has had to be innovative to be able to manage these cases. So, and I thank you for the opportunity to be able to speak about these cases. It's really been a rewarding experience to um, be a part of this. Not where I thought I would be a year ago. Well, agreed. And Diane, just final comment. Oh, I, I just have to reiterate uh, both what Dr. Reidberg and what Sheila have been saying, that 
it's been a ride because, you know, you do your job and you've, you know that with every patient that it changes a little bit. Well, with this new COVID-19, it's changed a lot. And what, what we know our patients need today may or definitely won't be what they need 48 hours from now. So you're trying to stay out in front of what of our what are our patients going to need? What are our staff what's our staff going to need? What do these families need? And how are we going to be out in front of that and meet those needs, meet those expectations and make sure that um, ability is maximized uh, in time to make sure that nobody misses that opportunity to be absolutely maximized and back out into the community in their home with their loved ones. Um, and it's just constantly changing. And it's it's an exciting time to be able to stay out in front and, and keep up with that. Well, that's terrific. Thank you. I want to thank all three of you for your perspective and for sharing your experience and uh, wisdom today. Um, thank you to Sheila Benyon, Dr. Leslie Rydberg, and Diana Rolls, uh, again, for just sharing uh, your thoughts and your expertise. Um, I'd also like to thank Shirley Ryan Ability Lab and Paradigm for partnering with us today so that we could present this episode.